With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Doctors endorse it, nutritionists recommend it, and customers love it. Calitrin Healthy Weight Loss. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calitrin. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. Lynn lost over 35 inches and 45 pounds. Calitrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body which decreases as we age. Taking Calitrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calitrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free, plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word WITNESS to 30605, and I'll send you a link to this special offer. Again, text WITNESS to 30605. Hello, listeners, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of Eyewitness History. This day, September 15th, is a day that's etched in history as Battle of Britain Day, marking a turning point in World War II. On this pivotal date in 1940, the skies over Britain roared with dogfights as the Royal Air Force heroically defended against the relentless German Luftwaffe. In recognition of the heroic dogfights, that British and American forces waged during World War II, I want to present an interview that I did last year with Colonel Bud Anderson. I do a proper intro of the Colonel in the episode, but I want to briefly say he is the oldest living Triple Ace fighter pilot who fought in World War II, and so I will leave it there. And now I give you my interview from last year with Colonel Bud Anderson. What was it like to hear about the JFK assassination? Or America's triumph over Hitler? Or seeing Queen at Live Aid? Our past is a collection of stories that bring us to now. Welcome to the Eyewitness History Podcast, where we view history through the eyes of the people that watch the events that shaped our world. Here's your host, Josh Cohen, and these are their stories. Thank you for tuning in. I am your host, Josh Cohen. This episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Colonel Bud Anderson. Colonel Anderson is a World War II AAA fighter pilot. During World War II, he served two combat tours in Europe in the P-51 Mustang, serving from November 1943 through January 1945. He flew 116 combat missions and destroyed over 16 enemy aircraft in aerial combat and another one on the ground. Bud was the highest scoring ace in the 363rd Fighter Squadron. Colonel Anderson was decorated 25 times. His awards include two Legion of Merits, five Distinguished Flying Crosses, the Bronze Star, 16 Air Medals, and the Legion of Honor, among many others. The legendary flying ace Chuck Yeager described Anderson as the best fighter pilot I've ever seen. Bud turned 100 this past year, January 13th, 2022, and is the highest scoring living U.S. fighter ace and the only surviving U.S. triple ace. We discuss 
strategies that he employed during dogfights, what it was like when he learned he was the triple ace. And also we talk partying with Chuck Yeager, which was an incredible experience. And I really hope you enjoy. And now I give you Colonel Bud Anderson. Okay. I am here with Colonel Bud Anderson. Colonel Bud, thanks for joining me. Good morning. Good morning. It's a pleasure, sir. I know, uh, I know you're busy, sir, so I won't uh, take up any more time than I have to. I'd like to jump right into it. I know you enlisted Colonel Bud in the Army in 1942, and that was just one month after Pearl Harbor. And I also know that you were working at the Sacramento Air Depot when Pearl Harbor was attacked. And I was wondering if you could tell me, sir, what your immediate thoughts were when you heard about the attack and how you responded to it. Well, the way uh, we were, I had just gotten on the day shift. They put all the kids, the young guys, you know, on the graveyard shift. And I had just gotten on days and we're working 24-7. And the foreman came around sometime in the afternoon and he says, hey, you, 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 Bud Anderson go home and come back at midnight. The Japs just attack us at Pearl Harbor. My God, I didn't even know where Pearl Harbor was. But I realized, uh, oh, this is different. Now it means uh, we're, we're at war. And I had originally attended, intended to just go into the service so I could fly. And that was my motivation. At that time, but now it was a two, two-faced thing, a war, and me learning to fly. But that didn't bother me really, because World War II is a really a big deal, and uh, our youngsters like me rushed to the uh, recruiting stations and uh, volunteered. They call it the greatest generation, but. Uh, I don't know whether that's we were just doing what we knew we had to do, and uh, that was get the war over with so we could get back to normal. Extraordinary. No, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. So, love to jump certainly into the into the dog fighting. Can you recall what it was like the first time you had to take out one of the Luftwaffe? <laughs> <laughs> My first first victory is uh, <laughs> is uh, kind of humorous. So I'll go ahead and use it. I was a flight leader, and that meant, you know, I'm one of the guys that's supposed to go find them, get us involved. And the first guy that uh, got a victory in our squadron, I think all of us flight leaders would have agreed that he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. <laughs> um, I haven't got a victory yet, and it's kind of discouraging, you know. I wonder... You know, something you don't know, apprehension, fear, things like this. And you wonder, my God, when it's my turn, am I going to run or am I going to fight, you know? And I think you don't really know until you get involved. So we're coming back. We had a relay system, and uh, we were released to go home. And I'm leading this flight of three and two other guys joined up, two or three other guys joined up, or I had four, I can't remember exactly. But I'm leading, and another flight came in and joined from the other squadrons. And so 
I see this uh, B-17 out way out in front of us, down low, maybe 25,000 feet. We're up at 30, 35. So I see those that got there, and you can tell he has one feathered and the other one smoking, and he's having a little trouble. So I says, hey, come on, guys, let's go down and take this guy out to the water at least. And so we head over. He's a, He's out in front of us, lower. You can't see my other hand, can you? Yeah. We're right here, and he's out ahead of us down low. And so we, and he's over here, so we have to go over to the right. Well, we started over that way, and all of a sudden, here comes three, I'll get to get three fingers out there. <laughs> three ME109s coming across like this. They, they're, they're heading out towards B-17. They obviously had not seen us because I think there was at least seven of us, probably more. And uh, now, so I'm leading this whole pack of Mustangs. And I say, okay, one of these is mine. And uh, this is going to be my first chance. So we cut them off at the pass and uh, it got into a turning dogfight with uh, another Emmy 109 going around like this. Well, the way we entered meant that I'm at a very steep angle, ones you can't shoot at, you know, and or be a very lucky shot. You want to get inside of a 10-degree cone or get right at 6 o'clock, or what we call 6 o'clock. That's dead astern of the, your target. And uh, so we're going around this thing, coming at each other at a very steep angle. And he's coming at me at a steep angle. And uh, so I said, God darn, why can't I get on his tail, you know? I'm out of spy with my squadron. And so uh, I said, I've been through three gunnery schools, and I shot quail as a kid. So I knew how to shoot. That's one thing that I did know how to do. And so uh, I said, you know, the next time I come around at that steep angle, I'm going to smoothly draw through him right center, down his center line, and then pull a lead, which I think, you know, I'm, I'm be guessing what the lead was, and I won't be able to see my target because he's under my nose. You understand that? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So... Next time it comes around, here he is. I pull through him. Got a lot of G here, too. And estimate his lead. Hold it or keep moving a little. Fire a burst. Then I let him come through. And here he is streaming coolant. I said, hot dog. <laughs> I, got, I got, got him. And he pulls up and bails out immediately. And so then I straightening out there and I'm kind of cheering to myself and I have a feeling of, whoa, here's the guy sitting on my wing like this, <laughs> right close. He's in just close as hell. And I can see his face. It was Johnny England, England Air Force Base. That's the guy Johnny England was in. That was the base he was named after. 
extraordinary. And uh, so he was down low and he had his mask pulled back and he was grinning like crazy. <laughs> he gave me a kind of a wobbly hand. I, I couldn't tell exactly what it was. But, you know, it looked like a okay. Then uh, we separated and uh, we go on home. And that was about two hours. And I finally convinced myself that I probably did not get that airplane. Johnny England probably got it uh-huh. under me. And I said, well, that's not very sportsmanlike. like <laughs> going on. Right. And uh, got home and uh, get the intelligence officers, and we debriefed. And uh, I asked my wingman, I said, did I get that airplane or did Johnny England get it? He says, you know, I was completely out of position when you did that. I saw him, you know, smoking and bailing out after, you know, that got my attention. And uh, so they weren't much help. (laughs) I thought, well, I guess I got to go talk to Johnny England. And I made a claim. I told the intelligence officers to hold it until I could talk to somebody and verify my claim. So um, I'm heading over to the officers' club where we all went afterwards and uh, talked to all the other guys, you know, about what happened during the day. And on the way over, I'm thinking, how am I going to bring this up? You know, I'm going to say, hey, Johnny England, did you shoot that thing out from under me? (laughs) Or what am I going to do? Yes, sir. So I... uh, walking into the club and he's on the other side of he saw me and he comes running over to me and he says Andy he says that was the greatest shot I've ever seen you got that guy out there about 60 degrees angle off and I went like this you know oh Johnny Uh, (laughs) as soon as we uh, I rushed to the telephone and claimed my first victory Wow. Oh, that's a, that's an extraordinary story. Thank you, Colonel Bud. That's wonderful. I have a feeling you may have already answered my next question, sir, but perhaps I'll go ahead and ask it and we'll, we'll just see where it takes us. So uh, as you might imagine, Colonel Bud, one of my main goals as a host, and certainly what I consider my greatest responsibility to our mutual audience is putting the listeners there, right, in, in, in the cockpit with you to relay the experience. And I'm just curious, as near as you're able to, sir, do you think you could please describe emotionally what the experience of being up there in a dogfight is like? Well, first of all, you got to understand that there is no typical dogfight. It's like playing cards. You're dealt so many cards. You've got to take those, look at them, and play that hand. And you need to know what to do instinctively to be successful. That takes a lot of training and a lot of dog fights to know that. And let's talk about fear a little bit, too. Uh, naturally, you're scared. After all, it's a, you're in a kill-or-be-killed situation. Yes. And uh, that kind of gets your attention. So when you see contrails coming in towards you and, you know, German airplanes in the area, and then you spot them and they're maneuvering. There's, there's 
there's fear because you don't, you haven't done this and you're not real experienced. And then you get down to the two airplanes, one versus one, and you're dogfighting with him. He's trying to kill you. You're trying to avoid being killed and kill him. And while you're doing that, this may sound crazy, but you're not actually afraid. You're so pumped up with adrenaline and you're so, you know, hey, (laughs) could get killed. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) And that really gets your attention. And I I like it onto, uh, like, I'm right close to the high Sierra over here. And it's a nice Sunday morning, and you're coming back from the mountains, and you're coming down the mountains. It's just colder than hell. And uh, you get into a turn, you hit some black ice, and you lose control of the airplane, I mean the car. And you don't throw up your hands and say, oh, God, you got it. Uh, <laughs> no, you do what you have to do, steer into it, get out. And then when you're all done, your feet might be shaking on the brakes and the, the clutch, but uh, <laughs> and then you calm down and say, "Jesus, that was close." Versus, you know, and that's kind of what I was trying to say because afterwards you're, uh, whoa, you know, that's <laughs> right, <laughs> really shaking on the rudder pedals and everything <laughs> where it wasn't before when you were when you were actually dogfighting. Yes, sir. Does that give you an idea about... Okay. Yes, sir. Certainly from, from the emotional standpoint. I want to go into that. Sure. I think we decided that if you survive five to ten engagements or missions, just flying over enemy territory gives you an emotional response. And... Uh, then you get through 10, your chance of finishing your tour goes up extremely. And uh, then if you're successful, then it's even easier and easier and easier. Uh, yeah. That's what I wanted to add. Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you, sir. So moving on then, Colonel Bud, was there a particular favored maneuver that you would reliably employ in a dogfight? Well... Fighting in a Mustang against the Germans, uh, I like to get them in a turning dogfight. You're turning around, 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 you know, like a couple of dogs, dogs trying to get on your tail. <laughs> <laughs> the Mustang was a great airplane. It was a great airplane for that theater. And uh, I felt like I could outperform 109 and 190, especially at altitude. I learned later that a ME-109 in the hands of a good pilot could give a Mustang a hard time down low, mm. low altitude, 15,000 feet or below. I had some engagement there and didn't seem to have any trouble. And at altitude, I felt we were quite superior to them. Excellent. Excellent. I would imagine, Colonel Bud, that confidence would be key in, in being a successful fighter pilot, as as in life, of course. And I'd love to know, did you always feel that you were the better pilot in a given dogfight, or was there a dogfight where you weren't so sure? 
Was I ever in one where I wasn't quite so sure? Yes, sir. Well, I only had one where the guy got behind me, you know, but out of range, you know, and out of angle. All the rest of them were in front of me. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of a long story, but it's a really good good dogfight. Yeah, um, feel free if you'd like to, sir. Yeah. Well, first I want to tell you about the philosophy of dogfighting and escorting and all this stuff. Yes, sir. When we first got over there, the bombers had, uh, as we were, as our group was arriving in England, the bombers had a halt. They were losing too many airplanes. They were getting unacceptable losses. And I don't know what that means, acceptable and unacceptable. I guess it's not you. It's, it's just, <laughs> <laughs> but they were, they, they just, they weren't getting enough replacements for the losses that they were having. And they were just now cranking up more bombers and more fighters. And the P-47s and P-38s were over there, but they couldn't go where the bombers wanted to go. So the Pioneer Mustang group was there, but they were assigned to the Ninth Air Force. That was the Air Force that was going to provide the close air support to the troops that are invading. And uh, so the bomber pilots were in charge of the Eighth Air Force, the Eighth Air Force, the Bomber Command, and the Eighth and the 8th Air Force Fighter Command. So uh, the 8th Air Force commander gave us our instructions, and he said, when the bombers are here, we want you to be close. We want you to be, we want to see you. And when the enemy comes in, you drive them away and come back. And uh, it wasn't the way to do it, as it turned out. Hmm. There's the other... And then they said, okay, we need fighter escort. And they said, hey, this uh, E-51 is over there. It's in the Ninth Air Force. We understand it has a bit longer range and longer endurance and all that stuff. Let's try them and see how that goes. So um, they did, and they were so wildly successful that the Eighth Air Force demanded that they get the P-51s. They were the next uh, unit in um, in the theater getting our airplanes, and that's another story, too. <laughs> <laughs> we learned that they were going to get the Mustang on their way overseas, and we had trained in the P-39s, and uh, we here were getting the P-51. We had not even seen one, let alone fly one, <laughs> but after we flew it, we didn't care. It was so much better of an airplane that we welcomed the change. And we had quite a bit of fighter time, so it worked out all right. Yes. But, but, but we had to do our own checkout, which was kind of weird. And it's, it's weird because we had the Ninth Air Force airplane there. You know, they were already over there. They could have come over and checked us out, but no. Didn't happen. So uh, anyway, um, we start flying, and we're under the um, under the close escort 
you know, we, we stay close going. We have that limit of 18,000 feet. We reached that altitude, broke it off, and went back up and escorted it again. So uh, it wasn't really a bunch of eager young fighter pilots just, just uh, going crazy. We felt like we were having our hand behind our back. And so the chief of staff made a complete change. He fired the 8th Air Force commander and brought Jimmy Doolittle in. And Doolittle, I don't have to introduce Doolittle to you. No, sir. But he had, you know, he had fighter experience, bomber experience. Um, you know, he was a different kind of a guy, a guy that knew about calculated risks. And so... He looked at the picture, and I, I learned this story after reading his book, After the War, you know, and I, I didn't know it really happened, but he went down to visit uh, the, the 8th Fighter Command headquarters, and he walks in, and there's this sign over the door, you know, uh, the mission of the 8th Fighter Command is to is to bring the bombers home safely. And he said, uh, asked General Kepner, he said, who put that up there? He said, I don't know. It was here when I got here. And Doolittle says, all right, tear it down. He said, the mission of the 8th Fighter Command is to destroy the Luftwaffe. He had gotten specific orders from the chief of staff. He said, look, you got to destroy the Luftwaffe over there before we can have the Vareed invasion, which is scheduled for June and don't you forget it. <laughs> so he's he's really under, uh, you know, high pressure. Yeah. And it worked like magic. He says, from now on, you fighter pilots, if you, you engage the enemy, you follow them to the ground and kill them. And they said, that's a pursue and destroy. That's the now is the policy. And... Uh, we need to destroy the Luftwaffe. And that's when the kills, the aerial victories, soared. And I think most historians agree that's when we broke the back of the Luftwaffe. But we did it by killing their experienced pilots, not bombing the factories and the oil and that. Well, the oil and gas helped, but uh, the airfield bombings and the conventional way of destroying the enemy's air force. So I wanted you to know that that's, that's what happened during this uh, next six months, the spring of 1944. And so my uh, one of the better dogfight story, is this getting too long? Or no, no, not at all. The floor is yours, sir. I'm, I'm enthralled. <laughs> okay, so... So we're under this pursue and destroy, and I've already shot down, I think, four or five airplanes. And uh, we still left bomber fighters close to the bombers because that was the <laughs> that was the bait. <laughs> but no, the Germans were going to come and come to try to get to the bombers. But this freed us up. 
we could leave half the fighters there, send the other half out and try to find these big formations of 100, 200 airplanes coming around and trying to make an attack and overwhelm the, the escort in one spot. And they like to head on attack. So um, I'm, I've got a flight of four, and we're stuck with the uh, not stuck. <laughs> we were assigned to the close air, close mm. air support during this uh, particular mission. And I'm leading a flight of four, and I'm following another flight of four. And we hear that uh, that we're being attacked up front. So the lead flight just really, you know, reversed directions and went fast. And I'm back here, and I'm starting to try to get up there, too. And I thought, sure, maybe I ought to look behind, because, you know, after you make a turn like that, and just in the middle of the turn, my inside wingman, who's down there to look back behind us, he says, we got bogeys coming in at 5 o'clock high. That's hmm. where I was looking at. <laughs> and I spotted them. I know what they were immediately. I knew they were ME-109s, and they weren't unknown, you know, uh, airplanes. So uh, I'm, go- I'm going this, I'm turning this way steeply, and they're coming in from here up high. This hun and the sun. This was classic. And uh, so I immediately reversed my turn, and that put my flight into a, what we call a trail. Rather than finger four, you're in one, two, three, four, you know, in a single string huh. formation because I turned into them so steeply. And I could go head on with the Germans. And it was so quick and fast that nobody got a shot. And uh, we go through. And so I'm wondering what they're going to do. And I'm watching them. And sure, they come around like this. Uh-oh. Yeah, I thought they'd go, you know, down into the bombers. But these guys are attacking us, and they're going to stay with us. And I said, oh, wow. And we were up at... Um, Oh, 27, 30,000 feet. And uh, I went around with them about two times, level flight. We we broke their attack, and now I'm slowly turning the tables on them. I'm gaining on them in this maneuver. I, after about two, you could see that I was gaining, mm. and I could see that too. So they roll out. And they go level back into Germany. And, of course, I've already spotted the huge uh, supercharger that sticks out the left side of their engine. And this was their best. This was a G model. Their best high-altitude fighter. So we're there in a string ahead of us. And I'm back here, out of range, in roll out chasing them, or like that, I'm back here. And so the number four men, this, this is pretty get along and drug out, but it's, <laughs> it's <laughs> Yeah. And he climbs and like this, and 
we're going straight here under him toward the other German. Well, I didn't want him to be able to drop down on us, so I sent my number through, uh, to, uh, number two and three, number three and four, I'm sorry, out of my blue and four, these two. I said, you chase him and we'll, the two of us will chase the, uh, the main body. So he did. He shot him down and joined us later. So now it's me and my wingman after three. And they're, and what you want to do is get him right here. 12 o'clock. I already told you how best get in that cone. Yes, sir. Not a high angle off. And so I creep up behind him and I get in there about 300 yards and uh, finally fire a burst and got hits all over him. And then uh, he did something crazy that I just couldn't understand. He rolls over and flies upside down. And I said, what the heck's he doing here? You know, you'd be very uncomfortable, you know, pushing up like this. You're on the top of the you're upside down up against the top of the canopy. And uh oh well it didn't matter. He's up there. I just I I'm a very comfortable sitting right side up. <laughs> <laughs> right at six o'clock and I fire another burst into him and that got him. That that put him out of he's he's gone. And so we got two more guys up here. And they're dancing around. Me-109 is not a very good airplane to turn and see backwards. The uh, if the canopy is very tight and the, your head, you know, right there, whereas a Mustang, you know, with the uh, Malcolm hood, you could lean out and count your engine stacks. And of course, the classic D, you could see all around back there. It was very good. So, um, where the heck were we? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. We're, we're going after the two. Yes, sir. So I could tell they're nervous because they're, you know, trying to see what, what's going on back there. And then pretty soon one of them rolls over and dives for the ground. And the other guy comes on this hard left turn climbing. So I'm going really fast. Now, and I'm closing on them, and I don't think I can make that turn. If I did, I'd be, you know, the throttle would come off, I'd drop flaps, I'd lose all my energy. And then I didn't know, you know, I might lose it and he could get on my tail. So instead of trying to turn inside of him, I roll out and I go smoothly across his path and pull up. And keep my energy, you know, smooth pull up. And he's down here and he reverses his turn and then comes up after me. And I'm thinking, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> like this. And uh, I had a wingman coming up with me. And I'm looking back like this. And I see him, I see him slide over like that. And he's going after my wingman. So I told my wingman, hey, you better take it down, take a verse. <laughs> Trying to speak of the right word. No problem. Evasive maneuver. Uh, go, you know, 
you're going to have, he's going to attack you. He is trying to attack you right now. So John, he took it off, went down, twirled, you know, just doing, and I dropped down on the ME 109's tail. And I'm still out of range. We're, we're all out of range. But the German sees that right away. And so he rolls out, separates it from me, and then comes around this hard left turn again. And I thought about it. And I said, I sure didn't like being above him, but mm. I think it, I think I zoomed him by doing this. So I smoothly go up, pull up like this again, very steeply. And sure enough, he reverses and comes after me. So, uh, boy, now I don't know, you know. And I felt pretty comfortable because I had so much more energy than he did. You know, I, I wasn't pulling G's and reversing turns and all that. I was just smoothly pulling it up. He had to come out of this turn here and rack around and pull it up, try to catch me. So I'm watching him. He's out of range. He can't. He has to get up here and, you know, shoot ahead of me. And he's down here and he can't quite get up there. And so uh, I'm <laughs> pulling up here. I'm thinking about plan B, which would be breaking into a dive and going to evasive maneuvers. But I saw him start wobbling around. You know, he's getting close to stall, I'm still in good shape. So I pull it even up a little steeper, and then he had to fall off and go down. Boom, I drop right on his tail, and we're going down like just, that's just the same maneuver. And sure enough, he goes into this hard turn again. And I thought, well, I didn't really like being up above him. <laughs> and it was not quite 90 degrees this time. It was in maybe about 60 degrees. And I think, by God, I'm going to try to turn inside of him, see if I can get a shot. So uh, he's made his hard turn. I come in here back instead of zooming across his path and start to pull inside. Well, he sees that right away, and he's like, oh, my God. you know. So he straightens out. And that's how I solved my angle off. And then he pulls up straight as a, just as steep as he could. Well, I come up there on the inside of him and uh, I'm inside a 20 degree cone. So I get a sight picture, fired a little burst and I saw a tracer go off his right wing tip. And you know, you had to be, you had to keep that ball needle ball, you know, your instrument flying. You had to have that ball in the middle when you shot or your your bullets are going to go off to the side. And uh, so I just gave it a little left rudder, fired again, and then I got hits all over, just and all over the cockpit, the engine, and huge uh, smoke coming out. And uh, his prop stopped, and I quit shooting. And I come sailing up to him right on his wingtip, just right in close formation. And I'm looking, and I get up here so I can see in the cockpit, it's just nothing but smoke. And he's going up like this. So I'm sitting here, and he slowly rolls like that. 
comes on down, goes straight down from 27 to 30,000 feet in that vicinity. And going just going no maneuvering, no nothing, just going 90 degrees. And I went through 20,000 feet faster than I'd ever been in my life. <laughs> so, uh, I uh, come back on a throttle and then I got into a wider circle, following them down, not just going down like that. This was a noon, a bright, sunny day. And he was leaving a black trail of black smoke. Oh, gosh, good, a mile long. And uh, I'm looking down at the earth, <laughs> and I see his shadow out here, way out here on the ground. And he and his shadow came together, blowy. Oh. Terrible crash. Wow. That was really a shock, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, that was that's that's my best story. We got attacked by uh, four, and we reversed the tables on them and shot down three of them. And it was a pretty successful day as far as we were concerned. <laughs> that's a uh, that's a better day's work than I've ever done. I can say that much. <laughs> um, no, thank you so much, uh, Colonel Bud. Uh, you know the reason I started this podcast was so I could hear you know, great stories. So I, I appreciate that very much. So, you know, one thing I, I can't quite have you on and not, not ask you the question, if you could recall where you were when you had become a, a triple ace. Oh, yeah. <laughs> not sure I know what the day was. <laughs> I don't know which airplane. Well, it would be the last one I shot down in my, I, I flew two tours of combat. And it was not, not missions, it was hours, 150 hours, or, Christ, I don't know, I can't pay 250, maybe. <laughs> but I'd done 100, I'd, I had flown the hours, and I had something like 70, 73 missions. Wow. And uh, I volunteered, went home, met my future wife, <laughs> and then went back to combat. It's really funny because when you come back, you have to get into the system again. You, know, you go through the. So I had to go to this replacement training, uh, replacement pilot center, and they said, "Oh, you, oh, you have to go see a shrink before you go." I said, "What?" And so, uh, okay, I'll go see a shrink. And he only had one question. He says, "Do you know that you do not have to go back to combat?" We have thousands of pilots that have not been to combat yet, and you do not have to go. I said, well, yeah, I know, but I want to go. Okay. (laughs) So I got to go back. I flew up through the invasion, and then from the invasion, three months, I started flying in September, and then I finished my tour, which could be anything you want it to be in January of 45, and I shot down 13, 13 and a quarter enemy aircraft in my first tour, and then I finished with uh, 16 and a quarter kills and uh, 480 hours, uh, which was 116 missions. What was a mission? The average mission was four and a half hours. 
And my longest mission was uh, D-Day. I flew that. That was six and a half, six hours and 55 minutes. And I still landed pretty good reserve fuel. Mustang was a marvelous airplane for the European theater. Probably saved the war. General wow. Jim Doolittle and the arrival of the Mustang made a significant impact on the air war in Europe and the final defeat of the Germans. Excellent. Excellent. No, thank you so much, sir. I have just a, a few questions left, Colonel Bud, and then uh, and then uh, you're no longer my prisoner. How's that sound? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, how was it then that you met Chuck Yeager? He was uh, he was in my squadron when I got out of flying school. I went to a replacement pilot training group. We were to go there and get checked out in a fighter and then go fight the war somewhere in the world. Well, when I got to that point, they said, oh, no, you guys uh, that came in about this, you know, some of my peers says, you're going to Tonopah, Nevada, and you're going to form up a brand new fighter group activated for World War II. We'll be the first guys ever in this new fighter group. And we'll train and then go fight the war. And uh, so we're, we're just barely checked out. <laughs> and here we're going to be the leaders in the new fighter group. <laughs> but unfortunately, I, I didn't realize. I just wanted to fly. And I wanted to get into the war about that time. I was very eager about that. And uh, I thought this was slowing me down from my opportunity to fly combat. But no, it was a super break. It put me in the early stages of the, put me in on the ground floor. And that's good for promotion. But the big thing it was, it gave me a whole new training cycle. And if you, the more flying time you get, if it's proper type training, the better pilot you'll be. And so it was a huge break for me. My hundred years is getting to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> Where was I? Uh, Chuck Yeager. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so Chuck Yeager was one of the new pilots, one of the first ones to come into our squadron. And so we flew well. And he, he got shot down in very early in March of 44. And he came back to our unit. He escaped. He got with the Free French, went down, walked over into Spain, and was interned or nowhere. And I think we traded him for some gasoline or something with the (laughs) Spaniards. But anyway, somehow or other, he got back to our squadron, and he was wanted to finish his combat tour. And he said, "No, no, you've been in you've been in enemy territory, and you you know you could compromise your the." If you were captured again, or no, captured, uh, they get said, no, no, you're not Chuck Yeager. uh, uh, He's interned in Spain. You must be a spy, you know, and they could torture him and find out what the free French were doing. So the policy was, you know, you don't go back to combat in the same theater. Well, he persisted 
and he got all the way up to Eisenhower. And it was a little later now. We had troops on the ground and all that stuff, and the invasion that happened was successful. He um, got a... <laughs> Each of them said, no, I can't, I can't give it to you. You've got to go see the next guy. And he got up to Eisenhower. <laughs> Eisenhower said, well, it's your ass, son. I guess if you want to, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> he was a little more flexible. We now had air, more airplanes, and we, were, we had troops on the ground. So anyway, so Jaeger is finishing his uh, first tour, and I'm starting my second. And he came to me and he says, "Hey, why don't we, we were we were pretty good friends." And uh, he says, "Why don't we finish our tour together and we go home together and continue our friendship? Maybe get signed to the same place, you know?" So, said, okay, I'm the operations officer now. I say I can schedule that. So, uh, oh, she says this leads into another story. <laughs> uh, so in December, by the way, I, I, uh, December of 44, I got promoted to major at mm-hmm. the age of, I was 22, and uh, and I was the operations officer. So, you know, I could schedule, and uh, I take care of the scheduling. And so he comes to me and he says, let's uh, finish our tour together. And so I thought, okay, I can schedule that. So it comes around uh, where his tour is going to end, and now I'll end my tour. And uh, so uh, he says, you know, it sure would be hell getting shot down on your first mission. I mean, your last mission. And we did have guys, uh, Gabreski, one of the leading aces, hung around a little bit too long. <laughs> <laughs> And he got shot down on his last mission. And I say, yeah, it's going to ruin your whole day and your whole career. And uh, he says, uh, well, I got this idea. You know, we've been down flying there and we see the Alps south of us. And some of our raids went very close to Switzerland. And uh, he says, let's, on our last mission, let's uh, go in a spares. He sent 16 airplanes out here and two spares. And if anybody aborts, anybody has to turn back for whatever reason, you fill in to get a full squadron. And he said, if nobody aborts, he said, let's go down and go on a sightseeing tour of this, the uh, Southern Alps. Oh, hey, you know, that'd be cool. Let's not tell anybody about it right now. (laughs) 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 So the day comes, uh, 15 January, I think, of 45. We go out, nobody, and and I'll have to say, we were seeing Germans, lots of them, occasionally. I think they were saving their fuel and their airplanes and all this stuff. And then... uh, going in there with a mass and try to overwhelm the escort. And, uh, or we weren't seeing and we weren't seeing Germans, we weren't seeing Germans, we weren't seeing Germans. We look at this mission and I said, well, this might be a pretty good one to go on, but how the hell with this? <laughs> let's go, let's go sightseeing. 
So we go and you cross, we cross as a channel and you're supposed to turn back as spares and it's not a mission. And uh, so um, we reach that point and they're off and we hit a, made a 35, 45 degree turn for Southern Alps. And uh, now when we get separated, we can't hear them and they can't hear us. So we can talk and they can talk and it doesn't matter. So we get down there and pretty soon we're flying along and he says, hey, there's Mount Blanc down there. Mount Blanc is still in France, but it's a very southern part and a beautiful big mountain sits up there. And this was the middle of the winter. We went down there and went around the top of it. And there's a big glass hut up here on the top. Nobody there. It's the winter time. So as we're circling, he says, hey, you strafe your, uh, you, do, you drop your tanks on the side of the mountain and I'll strafe them and see if I can set them on bar. <laughs> <laughs> so we do that. We photograph each other doing that. <laughs> Cameras only, you know. <laughs> and I said, and, and, and I, I'm thinking, I'm a, I think, Jesus Christ, we're already got done enough to get court martialed. And I thought, well, I'm a very responsible major, you know, <laughs> 22 years old. And, uh, and so, um, we do that and we go down on, look the Alps and fly all around and, he says we went to Italy and we went to Spain. And well, his version of this mission is different than my version. <laughs> <laughs> Chuck Yeager was not, not, uh, he did a little bit. Uh, it actually happened, but he exaggerates <laughs> a little bit. And uh, so we finally decided to go home and we went down on the deck from. Uh, southern Germany or southern northern Switzerland somewhere and uh, buzzed all the way home. Now that part of France was still occupied and so we thought we might see an airplane or two you know and maybe get a get a kill. So we're the last ones home from this mission and uh since it was our last mission, we buzzed the field and <laughs> a couple times <laughs> had to roll and uh, landed. And I'm I'm leaving and I landed and I'm taxiing back and I finally I see him land and I think, oh Jesus, we're both we're both landed there. Had a real warm feeling. You know, I'm done. I'm taxiing along and I look down at my hard stand as I'm pulling in and there's tons of people all around the damn place. I thought, oh, shoot. How the hell did they find out about this already? You know, of us goofing off and all this. And I, then I thought, oh, no, uh, they're patting me on the back for finishing my tour. So I pull into my hard stand, spin it around. And Otto Heino, my great crew chief, jumps up on the wing and he says, Andy, he says, 
the group shot down 56 airplanes today. How many did you and Chuck get? And he, <laughs> God, I just wilted down on the bottom of the cockpit floor. And, <laughs> <I couldn't. laughs> and it was, uh, well, we finally got out of had a few drinks and we didn't care. <laughs> but but then I thought, what the hell are they going to do to us? Uh, right. Combat, you know? uh, <laughs> oh, that's extraordinary. That's I love it. Yeah, Chuck Yeager and Bud Anderson <laughs> <laughs> missed the biggest air battle of World War II. <laughs> oh, I love it. Is it true that he called you the best pilot he ever saw? That's a combat pilot I ever saw. Yes. Wow. It's extraordinary. <laughs> I uh last question, sir. Okay, so your tour is over, a few drinks in you finally. What was it that you did after the war then? You you became a uh, aircraft manager. You managed aircraft after the war, correct? Directly after the war. I was assigned to the we we were sent to the training command and I was the group commander. And I had to fly the swash, the the uh, wash rides, and Chuck was an instructor. We both went to the same place. But that's directly uh, after after the war. Well, let's see. When the war ended, he came under some special special circumstances uh, as a uh, not a prisoner of war, but an escapee. He had a they let him choose where he wanted to go. And I was, I didn't have a choice. I went to the recruiting stations for the, my second, for immediately after the war. And uh, that lasted for a year and a half. And then I got into flight tests like Chuck did. Colonel Bud Anderson, this was a, a real pleasure. And if I may say in, in honor, I know that you celebrated your 100th birthday incredibly on uh, this past January. So happy belated birthday on that, sir. Thank you very much. <laughs> I want to thank you for your time, sir. Good. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you'd like to support Eyewitness History, the easiest way to do that would be to subscribe to the show on the podcast player of your choice and leave a review. For more information on eyewitness history, along with show notes and links to resources, go to ParthenonPodcast.com, where you can also listen to some other great podcasts by the Parthenon Podcast Network, such as Scott Rank's History Unplugged, Steve Guerra's History of the Papacy, James Early's Key Battles of American History, and Richard Lim's This American President, along with many others. Thank you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. They were some of the most powerful men who've ever lived. They waged war, forged peace, and altered the fates of billions of people. And yet, they were just as human, just as flawed as you and me. They were the presidents of the United States, and they are the subjects of the history podcast, This American President. In each episode of This American President, we explore how flawed men have managed this awesome responsibility. To listen now, 
Go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search This American President on your favorite podcast platform.